Hello, everyone, and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help autistic teens and adults become more independent and successful. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Time certainly flies by, and it's hard to believe that Autism Personal Coach turns seven years old this upcoming January. But during this time, we have supported many clients in going to medical appointments. These appointments can be stressful for just about anyone, but even more so to autistic patients. On this episode of Autism Stories, we talk with Dr. Sarah Zait about why these appointments are so anxiety-producing and what strategies medical practices can employ to make them less overwhelming. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Dr. Zait, thanks so much for joining us today. No, I'm glad to talk to you. Now... I know initially it wasn't your intention to work with so many autistic people. Why do you think your practice has attracted autistic people and their family members? I am active on Facebook as a physician, and so I did a couple of live episodes on things like sensory processing disorder and ADHD, which then kind of went out to our community, and I think... I think there's a lot of autistic parents really looking for a provider who gets their kid and gets them and their life. So once we had one kid in our clinic, they told all their friends. <laughs> one of my friends jokes that I found my niche, and I said, I was never looking for this niche. She said, well, then your niche found you, which I think is, is probably the best description of the whole process. You've created a blog, something I don't see doctors do that often. What, what caused you to start this blog? There is so much nonsense on the internet about medicine that is so untrue that it's actually dangerous for our patients. One of the ways that we can deal with it is by trying to take that information off the internet. But the internet is forever, and there's no way that we can get all of it. The other thing we can do is to put out good information, good evidence-based information that families can use to make intelligent decisions about their children. I think it, in some ways is our responsibility as physicians to be louder than the people who are putting out misinformation. And so I am one of many providers who is kind of in that group. I found you through your blog and you wrote a wonderful article about making a medical practice autism friendly that I really wanted to talk with you about today. The first consideration you have for practices is to look at their waiting room. I've been in many waiting rooms with autistic adults going to appointments and they can certainly be very overwhelming. What are some questions you think medical practices should ask themselves in designing a space that is less likely to induce sensory overload in the waiting room? It's partially structural. When we have those, those flat plastered walls, they echo sound everywhere. And when you have 15 or 20 people in your waiting room talking at normal volume and all the sounds bouncing off of all of those walls, it gets very loud. There are ways to combat that. There are things like acoustic panels that can sort of dim the, the bounce of all of that noise and kind of keep things a little quieter. There are partitions that can be put up between sections of waiting rooms. Our waiting room has a little cave kind of a thing in the corner with desks inside where our patients can go inside and color. And it's, it's just a little enclosed and it's a little more comfortable than that giant cavernous waiting room. And then we've set up chairs where there are several 
there without having them feel like they're going to go bouncing all over the room. It's a little bit contained. The other thing is, is really looking at, at the way you check your patients in. The way that somebody built our clinic was that the, there's a chest height counter. So the patient's parent stands there and talks to our receptionist who's seated. That's a really difficult dynamic. It's very hard to get sound across. It's very hard to communicate to each other's faces. So I really prefer when our patients and staff are seated at the same level so we can hear each other and see each other and make sure that the, the volume in the room stays reasonable. And then there's fluorescent lighting, which is always <laughs> always a problem, but very difficult to get around in practices. But there are things like sheets you can put over the lights to kind of dim them a little bit and make them not quite so overwhelming. But really, this is the thing that I think, I think doctors need to get a better grasp on is if I have 20 patients in my waiting room, I'm probably not booking appropriately. There's no reason that 20 people should be in my waiting room at any one time. There's only two doctors in my practice. That means my patient flow is wrong. So my priority should be to find a way to book, to bring those patients back as quickly as possible so the waiting room isn't this bus station kind of an environment, which is how I think some of them feel. So one simple way to just make it more friendly to patients in the check-in is just to put a chair right there for them to sit down in to check in. Yes, and they give it that, that sense that in this moment you are interacting face-to-face -face with this person who has nowhere else to be but with you. I don't know why being seated has that feel to it, but it matters, and if we can do it, we should always do it. Now, what about when the patient leaves the waiting room and they have, in many appointments, they'll have to transition to other rooms, sometimes more than one during the appointment. And transitioning can be very stressful for autistic people. So do you have any suggestions on how medical practices can help with this? So what we did was to really walk the process as a patient and think about each transition and who it benefits. Does it benefit the patient because there's only procedures I can only do in certain rooms? So if you're getting a hearing test, I do have to put you in the hearing test room. There's no other place to do that. That's not something I can change. But can I take vital signs in the exam room instead of moving you from the waiting room to the vital signs room to the exam room over a three-minute time period? That's a little stressful. Can I move this all to the exam room? And the answer is yes, because most of the time when we take those little detours to other rooms, it's to benefit our staff at the expense of our patient. We do it to save time. But it, if someone has a meltdown in the midst of all of that, that's not saving time. Just for about any patient, a medical appointment can be stressful, but I think even more so to autistic patients. Are there any strategies you use in your practice to reduce this stress? Yes. So we're a pretty small practice. We've got four staff and two doctors. So our patients get to know us all very quickly, but they always seem to know one staff member better than the other. So we've tried the patients who seem to struggle the most, we've paired them up with a medical assistant. So every time this child comes in, that medical assistant knows to grab that child. So it's always the same face. So same room. All of our rooms are set up exactly alike. Desks are in the same place, sinks are in the same place, 
So no matter what room you end up in, it looks exactly the same. We've learned to kind of move things around for the patient's comfort. There's no reason I need to wave at the beginning of the visit. I could do it at the end. And if the scale really bothers the patient, let's do it at the end. Or let's check the blood pressure at the end when they're calmer or whatever kind of works for them. But we've really, we've really tried to hear from our patients where their stress points are and work around those things in a way that's a little bit more sensitive to what they need. Now, with my father being a doctor, I've learned over the years from him that medical practices aren't always the most educated about autistic patients. So I, I read where you talked about educating your staff. What are some misconceptions you often see medical staff have about autistic people? So there's really two. One is that autistic people can't understand their own medical care. So I have, I have seen physicians walk into the room with patients and start talking to the parents or the other adults in the room. I'm reasonably certain that most autistic people can understand their own medical situation. And if they're adults, they have the right, in most cases, to make their own medical decisions. You need to talk to them. So that assumption of capacity is a really big issue. The other one is that all autistic people are the same. So if I deal with one person this way, I'm going to deal with all autistic people the same way. Everybody's different. Everybody has their own specific needs, and if you don't pin down what those needs are in the first visit or two, you end up making everybody's lips harder. So those have been kinds of things we've had to work around here and get the feeling that we sort of know each patient as an individual autistic person and that we address their medical care to them. Sometimes young at four or five, we engage them in conversation. What would be some suggestions for medical practices that want to go about educating their staff? There's two things you can do. One is you can just seek out formal education on autism, and that's a great start. But what I think has been more helpful for us is engaging stakeholders in the community who work with autistic people or who are autistic people and get their feedback on what we're doing and then try to operationalize that in a way that keeps our clinic flowing normally. So the, the best way to learn what autistic people need is, funny enough, to ask them what they need and then try to work with it. What has been the feedback that you've received from autistic people coming to your medical practice? Because it is certainly not designed like the typical practice. Well, they keep coming back. And I think for us, that's probably the best input we could ever get is that our patients keep coming back and they tell their family and friends, you need to come here too. Just if you're, if we're looking for a success measure, I think the number of patients that have come to see us is probably the best measure we've had. But I've had parents tell us, this is the first time that he's ever let someone take his blood pressure. This is the first time that he's ever gotten through shots without being restrained. And those, just those little tiny victories are things that we celebrate as a measure that we are doing what we mean to be doing. When thinking about educating staff, I think one piece of education that's important is educating on interpersonal communication and that many of the problems artistic people face in the world of medicine could potentially be caused by this. How much do you feel like this gets in the way of autistic 
people getting the proper medical care? I would say that more than half of it is just the issue of social interactions between neurodiverse and neurotypical people. Um, I don't know if you know Sarah Jane Harvey. She's an autism advocate from the UK. She posted a, a, an audio clip of herself in the emergency department. She was having some post-operative pain. And just to kind of show the treatment that she got. And it broke my heart because she asked for pain medication five times in 20 minutes. She was very clear about what she needed. But because her tone of voice was not, I guess, deferential enough, the response that she got from hospital staff was really appalling. And what became kind of obvious to me in hearing that interaction as a doctor was that the staff was reacting to what they thought she was saying, and they missed what she was actually saying. One of the things that we need to do as providers of medical care is to understand that our patients are stressed. That's not an autism thing. That's a people thing. And that sometimes their tone of voice doesn't accurately reflect how they feel. We need to respond to their words, and we need to communicate in words, not in in nonverbal communication because it's so mis- it's so easily misunderstood. So being less emotional about the tone of voice would be really important. Yeah, we really need to thicken our skin a little bit and understand that that's not something that everybody controls and it's not always intended to be offensive. It's just how the words came out. So listening to the words is probably the biggest skill that we've had to work on here more recently. Earlier you were talking about just asking, asking your patients. What types of things do you think doctors should be asking their autistic patients? The first one is you need to ask before you touch. And that's, again, that's not an autistic thing. That's a people thing. You need to ask before you touch, touch patients. And if they say no, you need to honor that. Because... Saying no to someone touching you when you don't want to be touched is kind of a fundamental skill for not being exploited. So that's one of our rules is if a kid says don't, we don't, unless it is a life safety kind of a thing. And we work around a little bit to try to get exams that we need in a way that the child's comfortable with. The other thing is ask specifically what questions they have. Make sure that they understand what you're talking about. Make sure that you offer the autistic person specifically, not their caregiver, but that person the opportunity to have input in their own medical care. Because I think it's something that we forget about, that these people are competent to make decisions as long as they've got good information. But we don't know if they understand unless we ask. Now, as part of the coaching of Autism Personal Coach, we're always looking at our clients as the experts, as we are there to support them in helping them to make their goals or, or dreams happen. How should you use expertise from these patients when they're in your office? So the, there's kind of two parts to that. One is that most autistic people, or if they have a caregiver, that caregiver knows that person better than anybody else. Acknowledging their expertise in themselves. I have a, a little boy who... For some reason, his sensory thing is all around his mouth, jaw, and neck. And he'll tell you, don't touch me there because I'm going to throw up on you. I have to listen to his expertise in himself. And when he has a sore throat, we work around it. We've taught him now to use a tongue depressor on himself. 
so that I can see, but I don't have to touch it. We would have never done that if we didn't listen to this five-year-old boy and telling me exactly what his needs were. And that's, in the short term, I think, how we honor people's expertise in their own chronic disease, as well as with autism. The other piece of it is, ask them what you're doing well, ask them what's not working. And that's just really getting patient feedback about their experience. What did we do today that worked? What did we do today that didn't work? We could help you de-stress in this office in preparation for a procedure. What would that look like? Would we turn down the lights? Would we give you fidget toys? Would we give you an iPad? What, what can we do here to make this experience better? And then actually do those things when issues come up. So some of it's just about us being respectful of them as the expert in themselves. For those that want to read your wonderful article about making a practice autism-friendly, or they want to get in contact with you, how would they go about doing that? So I am not an original person. So my website is drzate.com. On Facebook, I'm dr.zate. If you Google me, you'll, you'll find me. And so there's not a lot of dates in the world, I find. So I'm pretty easy to track down. And I'm located in El Paso, Texas, so nobody is anywhere geographically near us, ever. <laughs> but if you happen to be in town, we're easy enough to find. You can get a kind of tour of our office and see what we've done here to, to really try to make autistic people feel comfortable and empowered. Well, the... Next time, or I should say the first time I'm in El Paso, Texas, I am going to uh, give you a call because I would love a tour of your office. Yes. It's, you know, there's only two of us. We joke that it's like, like an old school, tiny private practice, but we're actually an academic practice, so we've got students. So the best part is I get to teach young, impressionable doctors how to do these things. Hopefully, they're going to carry them forward. I hope so as well. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Zaid. I really enjoyed the conversation. Anytime. It was nice to talk to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and thank you so much to Dr. Zaid for the conversation. When myself or some of the other coaches with autism, personal coach, go with autistic people to medical appointments, we use their expertise to plan for the appointment. We're also a second pair of ears to process all the verbal information that happens at medical appointments because so often there's a lot of talking being done. We also help autistic people to advocate for their needs at the appointments. We've been in appointments with doctors who are very knowledgeable about the needs of neurodiverse patients like Doctors 8, and that makes our job much easier. Other times, Doctors are not as knowledgeable, and the hope is that we continue to get more and more doctors to educate themselves about the needs of neurodiverse patients by doing exactly what Dr. Zate suggested, which is asking them what they're doing well and what they need to do to make the appointment less stressful and more successful. After all, autistic people are the experts of their experiences. Modern life can be challenging for anyone. When you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we celebrate neurodiversity by empowering adults and teens to be the best version of their authentic selves. The people we serve are the real experts. We're here to help their goals become a reality. To get an Autism 
coach for a loved one or yourself to achieve your goals or dreams, email autismpersonalcoach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Michaela Ackerman about how open space offices can be less overwhelming for autistic employees. Talk to you then. Just like you